everyone and welcome back to the preparing to plant podcast this is actually our final podcast for preparing to plant and so for the last time my name is mitchell slater and it has been my pleasure to do this i hope it has been helpful what we've been doing is we've been walking just passage by passage through the the uh, book of first or sorry the book of second timothy and just let those words from paul help shape our thinking and our praying and our planning as we prepare to plant uh, our new church, Clover Hill. So I hope it's been helpful. So on this final podcast, we actually get to look at the final words of the Apostle Paul. And these are not just the final words of this letter. They're the final words written down of his life. Paul would be executed shortly after this letter was written, and he knew that. And so these are the final words of the great Apostle. And this passage, it could almost feel anticlimactic. It's Paul just kind of talking about different people and sending greetings and giving warnings and just kind of giving life updates. It just seems kind of mundane and ordinary. But that's because most of our lives and life in the church, a life in ministry, is pretty mundane most of the time. But God is in all those mundane details. But also... Again, I heard uh, from one commentator that they said this letter was undoubtedly tear-stained. These are Paul's final words to his child in the faith, this young man that he's mentored, Timothy, for so many years now, and he's saying goodbye. he, He knows his time is up. His time is short. And so this is an emotional end to the letter here. Now, we see that Paul knows his um, his time is short in verse 6. We'll really be looking at 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, through the end of the letter in verse 22 today. We'll be pulling out different sections here. But he, he starts off in verse 6 saying, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. So, he, so he's being poured out like a drink offering, like a sacrifice. His, his time for departure, that is from this world, from this life, has come. He's in prison. He's been in prison a lot, and he's always gotten out. But he knows, I'm, I'm, I'm not getting out this time. Right? This, is the, this is the end of the road for me on earth. And so what does he say? Well, he says this in verse 7, and this is so good because, again, the deathbed can be so clarifying. Right? When, you, when you come to the end of your life, that's when you really see what's most important, what were the priorities, what did I live for that was worth it, what did I live for that I wasted my time on, right? And this is what the Apostle Paul says in verse 7. This be kind of the, the lens through which we view the rest of the passage. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Isn't that so good? That's what I want to be able to say when the time for my departure has come, that's what I want all of us to be able to say when we're in our deathbeds, that I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. So I want these three final priorities from the Apostle Paul to become our 
priorities. That's what I want to look at today. Because again, we've been talking so much on this podcast about having a long-term vision. We want to see even 200 years into the future, right, of saying, what do we want to accomplish through that time? And so we can start working towards that now. But also just thinking about ourselves personally, as we come to the end of our lives, what do we want to have worked for? What do we want to have given our lives towards building? And this is going to help these three priorities from Paul. First, he says, I have fought the good fight. Which means with the Christian life and even life in the church is a fight. Right? We are in a battle. There is warfare. That's what we're engaging in. I know a lot of people don't like this imagery anymore. But one of the images that the Bible gives us of the church is that of an army. Right? He said earlier, be good soldiers of Jesus Christ. Right Now, there are other images. We are a temple. We're a flock of sheep. We are a body. We are the bride. We are the adopted family of God. There's so many metaphors and pictures that God gives us, but this is one of them. We're soldiers in a good fight. Now, this is exactly how Paul talked in his first letter to Timothy. Right In 1 Timothy 1, 18 and 19, he says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, listen to this, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. Wage the good warfare. Or at the very end of that letter, 1 Timothy 6, verses 11 through 12, Paul says this, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, and here it is, fight the good fight of faith. Fight the good fight of faith. So what does it mean? What does it look like to fight the good fight? Well, we've already seen throughout 2 Timothy that there are challenges and difficulties and conflicts that come. Difficult times come because of difficult people, particularly in church planting. But we see some very specific examples in the rest of this passage. In verse 9, Paul says this, Do your best to come to me soon. And this is so painful. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Paul, fighting the good fight, at the end of his life, he's abandoned. Luke, his beloved physician, is with him. But that's it. All the others have gone other places, and particularly Demas. Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. We don't know the specifics there, but we have heard about Demas before. In his other letters, multiple times in multiple letters, Paul has mentioned Demas, and before there was no hint that this was going to happen. He was a faithful co-laborer in the gospel with the Apostle Paul. And here he has fallen in love with the present world and abandoned him. That's part of fighting the good fight. We need to realize that there will be hurt and pain relationally in the church. I personally have experienced this. I've experienced a good and a close Christian friend in the church who has completely walked away from the faith and has completely walked away from me. It hurts It's painful. We shouldn't be surprised when it happens. That's part of fighting the good fight. What else? Look at the end of verse 11. He says, Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful 
to me for ministry. That's amazing. Remember Mark in the book of Acts, there was a, a contention, a conflict that arose between Paul and Barnabas, right between the apostle to the Gentiles and the son of encouragement. There was this conflict that came up over Mark. Right? Mark had he had left the ministry on Paul's first missionary journey when things got hard, and Barnabas, being the encourager, wanted to bring him along, wanted to give him a second chance, and Paul didn't want to. And so they separated, they split, they went their own ways. But now Paul, at the end of his life, he's saying, bring Mark with you. He's useful to me for ministry. So part of fighting the good fight is, is reconciliation. It's restoration. It's fighting for other people. Isn't this beautiful? What a picture of grace. What a picture of grace. This is waging the good warfare of once that failure happened, yeah, Paul said, no, I'm not jeopardizing the ministry. But now years later, he's saying, no, bring, bring Mark back. He is useful for ministry. And think how much more useful he is now that he knows what it's like to sin and be restored. It's beautiful. Look at verses 15 or 14 through 15. He's, now Paul names names here. Okay, we, which means on occasion it is, it is perfectly acceptable. It might even be the exact right thing to do to name the name of a false teacher. Paul says, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. That's fighting the good fight as well, right? Opposition from without, from outside the church. He was a coppersmith. There's a high likelihood that he was um, a maker of idols, like we see in Ephesus in the book of Acts. And the gospel would lead people to worship the one true God and the various smiths, like a coppersmith, their pocketbook would get hurt, right? The gospel would actually impact the economy of the town as, as all the sellers and makers of, of idols and pagan statues, they would go out of business. And so there was this opposition. The same thing happens as the gospel makes impact in our world and in our community it impacts people in different ways, and some people come to Christ, and they love Christ, and they want to follow Christ, and other people respond the direct opposite way. They hate Christ. They reject Christ, and they oppose Christ and his people. Now, I love a phrase from Ray Orland. He says that part of the mission of the church is to make Jesus non-ignorable in our community, and I love that phrase. Making Jesus non-ignorable. That doesn't mean that everyone will come to love and follow Jesus and trust in him. What it means is they won't be able to ignore him because of us. Right? We are preaching Christ. We are sharing the gospel. We are opening the word with people. We are spreading that word. And so people can't ignore him. They may choose to follow him or they may choose to oppose him, but they cannot ignore him. We will not leave them with that option. We're making Jesus non-ignorable. But as we do that, we should expect opposition, which is why we need to fight the good fight and wage the good warfare. And let's look at 16 through 18. Paul says, at my first defense, this is a legal defense, right, before a Roman tribunal. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. Again, this is emotional. Can't you hear the pain in Paul's voice? All deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me 
The message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Ultimately, though we fight the good fight of faith with our brothers and sisters, we don't fight as a lone soldier. We fight as an army. Sometimes we are alone. You know, for all the talk that we give about biblical community, sometimes it is just you. Sometimes you're alone. What does Paul say? The Lord stood by me and strengthened me. Isn't that beautiful? The Lord helps us even when we're alone in the fight. The Lord stands by us and strengthens us. And so Paul just bursts out in praise, right? The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. He will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So brothers and sisters, we are called to fight. We are called to wage war, the war of the gospel. Not of physical swords, right, but of the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So Paul says, I have fought the good fight. He also says, I have finished the race. I have finished the race. This is a picture that Paul has used for the Christian life over and over again. We see it in 1 Corinthians. Uh, We see the author of Hebrews using it in that book, that we are running the race of faith. That's it. And our race, it is not a sprint, right? It's not a dash. No, it is a long-distance run, right? This is a cross-country run. And that can only work when you have a long-term vision, right? If you're, if you're running a marathon, you don't sprint through that, do you? No, you get into a good pace, and you keep your eyes ahead looking forward towards the goal. That's what, this is why we need a long-term vision, which means, like we've talked about before, often this is slow and steady. We're not trying to sprint. We're not trying to get ahead of God and what he's doing with us. No, we want to just be faithful, walking out simple obedience to the Lord, get into a good pace of gospel ministry, running the race that's set before us, because I don't want this to be um, just a 100-meter dash, and then we're done. No, I want us to have a long-term run as a church. This is what Paul had even said in Acts chapter 20 and verse 24 in his final address to the Ephesian elders. He says, I don't account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul says, I don't care about my life. It's not precious to me. I just want to finish my course. I want to finish the race, which is testifying about the gospel. And I hope that that is our, that's our mindset as well. That's our passion. That's our focus. We're saying, we just want to get the gospel out. I don't care about me. I don't care about my comforts. I don't care about my life. I just want the gospel to be known. I want to fulfill whatever ministry the Lord has given me. And if you're a Christian, the Lord has given you a ministry to be fulfilled. Now we see the energy for this race in verse 13. The energy for the race. This is the, the water that's, that's fueling us and giving us energy to run our race. Verse 13. 
And again, this almost seems like a little throwaway verse, but it's not. Again, all scripture is God-breathed. Paul said that in this book. But he said to Timothy, when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. Paul says, bring my cloak, bring my books, bring the parchments. That seems like it's no big deal, but this actually is a huge deal. This is how we get energy for the race. Spurgeon said it better than I did, so I'm going to quote old Charles Spurgeon. He said this. This is a little bit of a longer quote, but he has a whole sermon just on this verse. Okay, a whole sermon. You should look it up. It's so good. But this is what Spurgeon said. He said, We don't know what the books were about. We can only form some guess as to what the parchments were. But even an apostle must read. He, that is Paul, he is inspired, and yet he wants books. He has been preaching at least for 30 years, and yet he wants books. He had seen the Lord, and yet he wants books. He had had a wider experience than most men, and yet he wants books. He had been caught up into the third heaven and had heard things which it was unlawful for a man to utter, yet he wants books. And he had written the major part of the New Testament, and yet he wants books. Isn't that amazing? Well, Spurgeon continues, the apostle says to Timothy, and so he says to every preacher, give thyself unto reading. The man who never reads will never be read. He who never quotes will never be quoted. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves that he has no brains of his own. Spurgeon was great. (laughs) I just love him. But he finishes up. He says, brethren, what is true of ministers is true for all people. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will of all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritan writers and expositions of the Bible. You may get much instruction from books, which afterwards you may use as a true weapon in your Lord and Master's service. Paul cries, bring the books. Let's join in the cry. Isn't that so good? So we don't know what the books were. The books may have been books of the Bible. They may have been other books of sound doctrine and exposition of the Bible. But he wants to read, even in his last days. This is why we are a people of the book. This is why we so emphasize the word. We so emphasize sound doctrine. We so emphasize theology because that is what fuels our race. Yes, there is much work to be done. But that work is fueled by the word of God. But also notice in this race, there are practical concerns. Right? There are real practical concerns. He says, when you come, bring the cloak. Why does he need a cloak? Well, look at verse 21. Do your best to come before winter. It's going to be cold, so Paul needs a jacket. Right? Even on his deathbed, he is thinking about even practical concerns. Now, This is actually instructive for us right now at the phase that we're in with church planting. Right now, we are really in logistics mode, just so you know. We are um, getting the organization ready behind the scenes. We talk about the trellis and the vine a lot, where we want to be doing vine work in the church, working with people, and yet there's the trellis that helps that happen. There's the structure and the organization. We're doing both. There's a lot of trellis work right now. We're working on our new building, and man, a big shout out to Mark Lundquist. 
and to many of the volunteers and the Erasmus family. Those Erasmus boys, they have been working their tails off to get this building ready. It's been amazing. And we're blessed to have this new building. But here's the thing. While the building is not the most important thing, it is a real consideration. Just like while Paul's main point here is not about his cloak, it's not about his jacket, he still needs it, right? It's going to be cold. He needs something to keep him warm, right? We're going to gather for worship. We need a place to meet. So we're thankful for the building. And we're working through those things right now. But just know that's not the most important thing. The most important thing is the work that we're doing for the gospel, the work for the kingdom, and truly the work that God through his Holy Spirit is doing in us and through us and among us. That's what's most important. But, but we don't neglect those practical matters. And the last thing to say about this race is that it, it's not just a long-distance race, but it's a relay race. We saw this earlier in chapter 2 where Paul is saying, Timothy, find faithful men that you can pass the gospel on to and they can teach others also. We can just keep handing down the gospel from generation to generation. We see that here too. This is a relay race. Paul is passing on the baton. Look at what he says in 19 through 21. He says, Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Unisphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Prudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. Again, all these names, what's Paul talking about? These are the people who will replace him. Paul is about to step off the scene of history, and these people will step up to replace him. He has poured into so many people. You can just tell Paul knew all these people well. When he says greet them, that word greeting literally means embrace. He's saying give them a hug. This is relational. It's warm. It's personal. Paul knows them, and he is handing off the baton to them. But for him, he has finished his race. And one day we will finish our race. So let's be preparing those who we can hand off the baton of the gospel to. So Paul has fought the good fight. He has finished the race, and he says, I have kept the faith. I have kept the faith. That is, not just his own personal faith, but as we've talked about before, the faith. That is the faith once for all delivered to the saints, otherwise known as the gospel, the message of salvation through Jesus. Remember, this goes back to how Paul started. Back in chapter 1 and verse 14, he tells Timothy, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. He says, I've kept the faith. I have guarded the gospel. And this is why we talk about gospel centrality. Right? And it almost frustrates me a little bit the way this gospel-centered movement has been co-opted and now everything is gospel-centered. Right? You can go to a bookstore and find gospel-centered gardening and gospel-centered auto repair and gospel-centered this and gospel-centered that. But there is a true point here. Paul was centered on the gospel, and he wanted his churches to be as well. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says this is a matter of first importance, the gospel message. And so one of the things he can say at the end of his life is, I have kept the faith. I have guarded the gospel. Now, one thing I love about River Oaks is that we have this big graveyard right beside us. And I know that's not the hip and flashy thing. You know, we won't have a church graveyard at our new church. 
But I love it because it reminds me that there are so many saints who have gone before us. And one day, all of us who are planting this church will be out in a graveyard somewhere. What do we want to leave behind? We want to leave behind healthy, mature disciples who love Jesus Christ, who are trusting in the gospel and declaring the gospel and living every day by the gospel. That's what we want. And so as we're planting a church, again, think beyond ourselves. Think beyond just, just our time right now. We want to be thinking as we plant this church and we start off you know, a brand new fellowship. How are we going to fight the good fight? How are we going to finish our race? How are we going to keep the faith? That's what's most important. So let that shape your thinking. Let that shape your praying. Let that shape your planning for Clover Hill. And as we close out this final podcast of preparing to plant, we need to finish the way Paul finished, where he lifted his eyes to heaven. He set his gaze on eternity. Right, listen to this. Back to verse 8. You know, he's just said, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. He says the heavenly kingdom is opening up. A crown of righteousness will be given to me, not just to me, but to all who love Christ's appearing. That's it. One day, all of us, all of God's people will be gathered around the throne of God to worship him in fullness of joy. There will be, on that day, there will be no more preaching. There will be no more evangelizing. There will be no more sending missionaries. There will be no more planting churches. The mission will be complete. So set your gaze, the gaze of your heart, on the eternal reward. That's how Paul ended his life. So as we're church planting, we can pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We are more than happy if you interrupt our work. We would love it. But until he comes back, we have work to do. So church, by the grace of God, let's roll up our sleeves and let's prepare to plant. Let's close with Paul's final words here. He, he offers one last word of grace. One last word of grace. Verse 22, the Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. And so I say that same benediction to you all now. For each one of us that are going to Clover Hill, for those who are staying at River Oaks, may the Lord be with your spirit and grace be with you. So thank you for listening to this podcast. I do hope that it has been helpful. And so for the last time, may the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. 